Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you met at a networking event. HubSpot's all new service hub can help. Well, in the service solution part, at least. It brings service and success together in one powerful platform for the first time ever. With an AI-powered help desk and an AI chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Also, you can scale support and drive revenue and retention. Visit HubSpot.com service so you can do more with your customers today. And welcome to Another Bite, where we rewatch the most innovative and intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory, and I'm joined today by Ariel. Hi, how's everyone been? Get it? Bean. Coffee. <laughs> bean. <laughs> Starting off it. with some puns. <laughs> love this. Keep this rolling. So today's a bit of a special episode because, you know, we've kicked John to the curb. Sorry, John. And we've replaced him with a special guest. Today, we've got Margaret Niamumbo on the line and... Margaret is the founder of Kahawa 1893, and that is a Kenyan direct coffee company that was featured on season 14 of Shark Tank. We've got a lot to dive into today. It's a tall order indeed. But first, thanks for joining us, Margaret. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. So the first thing that I wanted to kind of dig into was really you and your entrepreneurial journey way before you made it to Shark Tank. So Part of your Shark Tank segment was you mentioned that you came from Kenya and you grew up on a coffee farm. Is that right? Yes, I did. So I grew up on my grandfather's coffee farm Mm -hmm. in Kenya. And I essentially was running around the coffee farms, like eating the berries. So coffee is almost like a berry. Mm -hmm. What we consume is the seed that's inside of it, but it's actually similar to a cherry. So we grew up sort of running around the farm and, you know, picking the berries and eating them. In fact, we didn't actually drink coffee in Kenya. Mm -hmm. We exported all the coffee. We drank tea instead. So uh it was interesting for me when I moved to the U.S. for college. And then I found that the coffee drinking culture in the U.S. was amazing. It was like you're drinking coffee in the morning instead of tea. And so I really got into the culture. Mm -hmm. So was coffee something that you always knew that you wanted to pursue in your career? Or was it that something that came later as you were sort of like reflecting on your journey and where you wanted to take your life? Not at all. The opposite. So growing up, one of the things that is very sort of well-known in coffee is the inequity. So farmers don't really make enough money Mm -hmm. from growing coffee. So it's considered a poverty crop. It's something that you do because you fell into it. So the idea Mm -hmm. for me was, you know, my parents wanted me to go get an education and get a desk job. So if I was running away from coffee, I didn't Mm -hmm. think that I'd ever go back to it. Mm -hmm. And so it was very surprising for them that I went back and they were very resistant at first because I came here, did my undergrad, Mm -hmm. got my MBA from Harvard, and I was working on Wall Street at the time. And so it was a big shock for them that I would leave my office job to go do coffee, which, you know, they considered it not a great thing to do. So when I was working in banking, I used to cover consumer companies and I really got interested in building something Mm -hmm. from scratch. And when I thought about what I wanted to build, I wanted to build something that had, had an impact. And so growing up, one of the things I noticed was that a lot of the labor in coffee, about 90% of it is actually performed by women on the farm. 
but you don't see women in the rest of the supply chain. So you don't see women-owned coffee companies. Mm. They're not that common. Coffee looks very Mm male-dominated. In fact, white male-dominated in general. So you don't see that same diversity on the coffee side that you see on the farm side. And because of that, we know the wages are not that high because the work is being done by women. So it's being undervalued. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to build a brand that focused around women's empowerment and really making sure that the women got compensated. And so one of the things that I did was I introduced a tipping idea. So on the back of our bags, Mm -hmm. there's a QR code that you can scan to tip the farmers. And that idea actually came because what I observed growing up was that the women, even though they didn't own land, they were the ones that still ran households. Mm-hmm. They still had to run their own household. They still had to make money. And the way that they financed their households was essentially borrowing among themselves. So they came together in groups and did something called table banking. They sat around a table, got a big pot. They put all mm-hmm. their money into that pot and gave to one person. Wow. So because they were not banked, they found a way to bank themselves. And so when I started, the easiest, mm-hmm. most direct, impactful way was how can we add more money into that pot? And that's where the tipping idea came from. Mm-hmm. Which is such an amazing idea to ensure not only that your brand has like a means to continue to support its mission without having to like sacrifice scale. Was the tipping idea, was that influenced at all by like the American culture? Tipping is such a huge part of coffee shops and baristas in the U.S. How much of that would you say is impacted by that versus this is something that you kind of always had that intention set out for? It was 100% influenced by coming to the U.S. and kind of seeing how tipping worked. And I realized, you know, consumers, because of how the market is set up, we want to pay more for coffee, right? And if there was a way for us to circumvent the market dynamics and actually directly support the farmers, we could do it. And so the tipping model was 100 inspired by seeing how tipping worked here. Mm -hmm. So when you had this first idea of like, you know, this is something I want to pursue as an entrepreneur, once you were set on really turning that idea into a business, were there anything that you had to keep in mind or any pitfalls that you learned along the way that you'd encourage other entrepreneurs to potentially avoid (laughs) as they're thinking about doing the same? Actually, when I started the company, I wasn't thinking of it the way that you'd think about, oh, I'm going to build this business to be big and and do something. I was thinking of it Mm -hmm. as something I wanted to do on the side, something I wanted to do to transition into something else. So for me, it felt like a project Mm -hmm. and it allowed me to really explore Mm -hmm. the brand sort of from just pure passion. I wasn't super worried Mm -hmm. about margins, profitability. Who am I going to sell it to? How am I going to make a living? It was a passion project. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) That's something I would encourage people to do, Mm -hmm. especially if you're starting out something that's brand related because it takes a while to build Mm -hmm. a brand. It's something you have to build brick by brick and really build trust. My first customer came from my friend's company. So I told my friends, I want to do demos. I want to do tastings. Tell me, you know, if you know a place I can do it. So uh, my friend said, oh, you can come to my office and I'll like organize for you to do a tasting at my office. Mm -hmm. And then I met other entrepreneurs and they were doing markets. Mm -hmm. So we went to markets Mm -hmm. and at the markets, the really cool thing about doing it that way versus doing something in a lab and then coming out to launch this like really nice brand that you've kind of, that's very visual and aesthetic is because you learn a lot from customers. So I I was new to the coffee industry and people's preferences Mm -hmm. and being in the market, having people taste the coffee 
and tell me how they liked it mm-hmm. revealed a lot of preferences that I literally had no idea. I used to drink myself like mm-hmm. sometimes instant coffee at home. So like <laughs> I didn't really know mm-hmm. pe- how people drank their coffee. So True. it was like market research out in the wild, not a survey, just someone tasting the coffee and telling you how they think about it. So I think that's like very useful in terms of building brick by brick, really building a community, starting an Instagram and you have like five followers and then a hundred and then a thousand. Yeah. It's really slow at the beginning. Yeah, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, brick by brick. So I really enjoyed that process. Mm-hmm. And another thing that I did was when I launched, I didn't have enough volume to buy bags and packaging. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I don't know if you guys remember the millennial time where everything was in jars. Yes, the mason jar And I was craze. like, oh my God, yeah. I just put the coffee in mason jars. It looks cooler, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tie a ribbon on it, call yep, it a day. Yep. <laughs> that was really just because I didn't have enough you know, volume yet to buy things in bulk. And I was like, actually, mm-hmm. I'm going to use that constraint as a feature. Mm-hmm. I think you're such an important person to look up to for women of color, but also just like business owners that might represent, you know, more minority groups. And I was curious if you had any advice based on some of the reflections from your journey and what you've learned for other entrepreneurs and founders and how you found success. Yeah. One of the biggest things that happened to me at the beginning was I got lucky, but this is something I would encourage other entrepreneurs to do is I found a mentor. Mm -hmm. So it was someone that was in the industry for Mm, a lot of years. I'd actually Mm -hmm. been like part of opening like the first couple of stores of Starbucks. So he like knew the industry really well. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they encouraged me to start a brand because Mm -hmm. they said, actually, there isn't anyone like you. There's no voice like you. So usually in coffee, a lot of the brand is kind of third party. Mm -hmm. So a lot of brands are speaking on behalf of farmers, right? Mm -hmm. On behalf of producers. Mm -hmm. Um, So this was like the first time that, you know, I could just speak directly, both as someone who had their background in producing and, and really talk about the coffee directly and really tell our stories without them being edited. And at the time, specialty coffee was very snobby. Mm -hmm. So it felt very like privileged. Mm -hmm. So there was a bit of pretentiousness there, right? Mm -hmm. And so there was a language, you had to have a certain, like there was a certain way to do it. You had to have these expensive tools to do it. So there was benefit in having someone that could be more kind of approachable and really speak directly about the process. You need to find like a mentor someone that's already done it mm-hmm. and ask them for pitfalls because you're going to make the same mistakes yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. that everyone makes. So you want to make sure like you save time and, and money, especially. And also just as a minority founder, I didn't limit myself to networking just within other minority entrepreneurs. Yeah. And because our industry is predominantly white male, mm-hmm. I specifically was open to seeking allies. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to make sure that I could get support yep. from people in the industry that had the power. If you want to understand or like penetrate an industry, you want to make sure that you are talking to the power brokers mm-hmm. as opposed to being on the periphery. Sure. You know, I think I'm delusional too, so that helps. <laughs> you have to be delusional. <laughs> we yeah, all are a little okay. bit. We're all a little delulu. It's you fine. have to be to go in and build a business. <laughs> yeah, so I think not being afraid to ask for help and network And what I found was interesting is that people in the industry also were concerned and had observed the inequities, but they felt helpless. So I think my appearance Mm -hmm. on the scene provided for them like an actionable point to actually like 
have an impact and help and give yeah. back. Mm-hmm. They felt like, oh my God, like we want to help sure. you because we do see the same inequities, but we just haven't been able to help in a meaningful way. So Margaret, I'm curious to know, was there a defining moment for you when you realize that, hey, I'm really passionate about this. I don't want to just have this be like a passion project. Yeah. After founding the brand, after a little bit, I moved to the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. And what happened there was we ended up supplying the coffee to some of the tech offices in the Bay Area. So think like Facebook, Twitter. Smart. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. That's how you get into the startup scene. (laughs) The coffee drinkers. (laughs) That was validating, right? To be able Mm. to supply coffee to corporates. But then what happened was the pandemic happened Mm -hmm. and that whole business went away. Mm -hmm. And then we were down to ground zero. And then that's when I was about to be, okay, like brush my resume (laughs) to find a job. (laughs) And then we got another lucky break. And that's what entrepreneurship is about. It's a lot of like a series of like lucky breaks Mm -hmm. as you're about to close shop. A break happens and you're like, oh my God, we're still alive. And so we got a lucky break where we got into Trader Joe's Mm -hmm. and we became the first branded coffee they brought into their store. We became the first black woman on coffee brand to be nationally distributed. I didn't even realize how big this was, but I remember browsing through Facebook and then like seeing news stories about it. Mm-hmm. Like the yeah. first time I'd ever seen anything like You're that. You're like, it's real. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wait, that's me. That's my brand. <laughs> but yeah, so that was like the big break. So once we got into Trader Joe's, like, it gave mm-hmm. us sort of like that boost that we needed to really keep going. So I'm very curious, at what point was Shark Tank brought onto your radar and you decided to ultimately go for pitching to the sharks? It was something I never considered. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because I don't like pitching in public terrified of all that like I only do it out of necessity (laughs) for like grades or something that's not something I like wanted like I I watched the show and I was like oh my god like those people must be very Mm -hmm. and I'm coming from Kenya and our culture is very reserved and especially for women we're very reserved Mm -hmm. so for me being in front of like such a big audience and like really being able to go toe-to-toe with very famous people I thought that was terrifying Mm -hmm. so I never considered it I don't even think I'd make it there but a friend of mine had ended up doing it the year before and then Casually oh, cool. mentioned it to me, you should do Shark Tank. Yeah, I was like, oh, you should do it. And I was like, I don't know. Like, it just seems like not a good fit for me. But I just filled out like a form online and I wasn't even sure it was, whether it was a scam or not. And then I got a call back. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, if I knew how hard the process is, I would have probably been even more terrified. So this was like ignorance is bliss. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked out. So there you go. It's a good strategy <laughs> for the Shark Tank. Yeah. They do a really good job of giving you bite-sized, <laughs> pun intended, kind of tasks. So you never feel overwhelmed. That's so it. they're like, do this this week. Okay, next week, here's something else. And then here's something else. They never kind of dump mm-hmm. everything on you on day one. So it feels very like, just like you're walking slowly. Before you know it, you're like, at the podium. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was never thinking about the airing. I was always thinking about, oh, this is mm-hmm. a useful process actually as an entrepreneur because they make you mm-hmm. go through a whole almost fundraising process. They help you understand your business better. They help you understand like how to pitch it better. Mm-hmm. So to me, this was free coaching. Yeah. When you think about it. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> it's a forcing mechanism to get your stuff together. They force you to think about your margins. They force you to think about mm-hmm. just your business in a way that you just never really did. Yeah. 
I, re- I really thought that it was a positive experience, I, whether mm-hmm. you make it to airing or not. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the episode ended up being amazing in terms of like mm-hmm. the discussion, the negotiation, and I ended up having a shack that I wanted with a good deal. The episode also went viral. Yeah, in Kenya, right? In my community here, it went viral in Kenya. I got calls from like the press in Kenya. I did some interviews. Even the president's oh, office cool. gave me a call. I got... Oh. It was like such a big cultural moment in my community. Mm-hmm. So it was like, I became like famous. It was kind of weird. <laughs> it was just a positive experience in general. So you walked away with a Shark Tank deal. You walked away with a partnership with Emma. I have to ask, what has that looked like post Shark Tank? What's been the biggest surprise or even the biggest learning with working with Emma so far? It's been such a positive experience. Emma's great. I honestly didn't know how much hands-on the sharks were or could be. Mm -hmm. You know, just different investors have different levels of involvement. But part of the reason I picked her was I kind of high expertise and specific genius in branding and strategy. Mm -hmm. So just to see that, you know, be actualized has been great. That's awesome. Has there been any like major lessons that you've learned from her so far? I think in terms of lessons, that I've learned is that you have to do the work, mm. that there is no magic. So I think sometimes people when see people, when people see like successful businesses, they think there's a formula that works. But I, I think what I'm learning from Emma and from other sort of people in the industry is that you still have to do the work. Yeah. You still have to do the groundwork. It's still mm-hmm. a lot of building. It's, a, it's still a lot of hard work. It's still a lot of talent that goes into success. Mm-hmm. I was tempted at the beginning when the brand was smaller to chase after like this thing will transform the business. Like, mm-hmm. And then you realize actually it's not. Like you do need to build brick by brick. <laughs> There's no magic formula <laughs> mm-hmm. to anything. Everything is built over time. <laughs> As you were building brick by brick, but also as you think about scale, I have a marketing question. So specifically for a specialty coffee brand, but then also just like your experience as an entrepreneur, what have been some marketing channels that you've leaned into that have been really successful for you and your brand? Like, has it been user-generated content? Has it been email marketing? What's your strategy been in terms of like the marketing side of things? Our DTC has grown due to Shark Tank, but our business is still primarily mm-hmm. wholesale, so selling to consumers. So our marketing looks quite a bit different okay. from our regular brand because we focus a lot of our marketing at the point of sale. So we're doing a lot of our marketing sort of on the shelf, mm-hmm. which is where customers are making that decision. Cool. Mm-hmm. And then on the DTC side, there's sort of two types of marketing that people think about. There's like brand marketing, mm-hmm. which is sort of top of funnel, mm-hmm. which is making people aware of the product exists, but you're not selling them a specific product. And then there's performance marketing, which is sort of the Facebook ads or Google ads where you're making a specific offer. You can track the ROI on that spend, right? Mm-hmm. So for us at this point, we've been focused more on the brand marketing side which is sort of top of funnel, Mm -hmm. increasing brand awareness. And that's because a lot of our business is in wholesale. Attribution is trickier, right? We don't know if someone saw the brand, Mm -hmm. someone's going to like watch this podcast and go and buy it at uh, Trader Joe's. We just, we don't know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Because of the nature of our product and the the nature of coffee, Mm -hmm. we think it's very powerful to tell the brand story. My only advice is again, 
to focus as an entrepreneur, like I wouldn't be torn in too many directions. Pick one channel and do it really well, right? And that's where sometimes entrepreneurship can feel like formal mm. because like you think people have success mm. in other channels and then you're tempted to go to those channels, even though they might not be the best fit for you. Right. It's a discipline thing, mm-hmm. thinking about, okay, what is actually good for me and like, what do I want to do it? So for us, it's been brand marketing is kind of what we found to be most powerful for us. We're really focused on that. That's awesome. Which makes sense because you all are in a very competitive space and a very competitive category when it comes to coffee and specialty coffee. And is there anything else from like a retail perspective or other ways to like drive that foot traffic as you're building that awareness? Yeah. For the retailers that we're in, um, you know, one of the ways that we do that is they call them shop talkers. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever been to a store and they'll have like a story, like Whole Foods does it now where they have like story of the founder mm-hmm. next to the product. And that's kind of like a way mm-hmm. of bringing your social media like on the shelf so someone's you know knowing a bit more like putting a face to the product right and being able to Mm -hmm. see something that they would see on your website right so that's I think really powerful and then I think you know retailers have all sorts of like programs like on their newsletters Mm -hmm. that you can participate in to make sure that customers are aware that the product is in the store so there's like different strategies that you can use to market to a retail customer and then once they're in the store draw attention to your product Mm -hmm. one of the things we invested in obviously was packaging Um, we wanted our packaging to stand out on the shelf and Mm -hmm. that's paid off because a lot of our first time tries are people are like oh this looks cool let me try it and then it tastes great now it's my coffee Mm -hmm. if you have a physical product don't underestimate aesthetics Mm -hmm. they matter that makes sense so as we're wrapping up i have to ask What's new and upcoming from Kohala 1893 that we should keep an eye out for in 2024? I'm so excited for 2024. Mm-hmm. We're going to be releasing new products. Ooh, I can't okay. say anything about them yet, but they're going to be oh. new ways of enjoying the products. I'm excited about that. Keep an eye out. New cool <laughs> partnerships with household names. Nice. So I'm excited about that. Cool. But I think it's going to be like a year that we really like stretch our arms and play around with Mm -hmm. all the fun that you can have with coffee that's never been had before. So I'm pretty excited about that. I have to ask also, you mentioned not really drinking coffee before (laughs) coming to the US. How do you prepare your coffee now? And like, do you drink coffee now or is it still very much the tea side of things? (laughs) (laughs) So with coffee, what I realized was like knowing how to brew it is the most important. So I'll give you like three quick tips. Ooh, yes, please. So I kind of brew different ways, but like today I used a French press. I love how simple it mm-hmm. is. You can't mess it wrong. So the way I brew it, I grind it fresh. So I have a, a grinder and when you're grinding it, you have to grind it for the brew method. So for French press, you want to grind it a little bit coarse. And then for other methods, you want it to be a little bit finer, right? And so you want to grind it fresh, like you get the best product that way. And then the second most important thing, and this is something I didn't realize until like I went into coffee, was the temperature of the water is the most important. Because mm. I, I used to think all oh, coffee was bitter, but it's because the water is too hot. Mm-hmm. So the temperature of the water determines which components are extracted from the coffee. And when the water is too hot, it extracts a lot of the bitter components. Oh, like tea. That makes sense. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that's really transformative. And also like that's why the grind size matters too. So if it's too fine it's going to over-extract. Mm. There's a science to extraction. And, and so grind size mm-hmm. and water temperature 
are like the two things that are always interacting with each other. And then the third one is like the roast level. So there's like mm. light, medium, dark. It's like if you're doing your steak rare, medium rare, dark. And it's a preference thing, right? So if you like your steak well done, like that's your preference. So you just need to know that that's the roast level that you want. If you like it rare and like blood dripping, <laughs> then you want your coffee super light. It's <laughs> a good analogy. Yeah, it's like, so it's a preference thing. So knowing, so I came to realize that I liked my coffees lighter and a lot of the coffees get roasted very dark. Mm -hmm. And that's actually like commercial because like when coffee is lower quality, you were going to burn it anyway. So no one can tell it was bad. Mm. So that was like a cost saving thing that then like became like a taste preference. Because yeah. when you sometimes when you drink something for a long time, you kind of start to like it. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened. Like over a long time, coffee was being burnt mm -hmm. because it was like lower quality. And then we just got used to like, this is how coffee tastes. It's burnt and bitter. Like that's mm -hmm. coffee, but that's not coffee. Just bad that's coffee. just like a commercial <laughs> way of yes. like making use of coffee. That's like bad quality, right. To make more profit. Mm -hmm. And so that's why lighter coffee, like specialty coffee was really good about lighter coffees because we were able to showcase actually when coffee is like high quality, mm -hmm. you don't need to burn it. Mm -hmm. It's about knowing like the right, kind of ingredients the quality how to roast them how to brew them mm -hmm. and then like after that i'm just like tea like i don't know you but <laughs> you know sometimes in the winter <laughs> i know you awesome well thank you, thank you so much margaret for this that was amazing and so insightful and we're so excited to see what comes out yeah next year. oh my gosh i can't well, wait yeah, yeah. Stay, yeah, stay on our radar and um, super super excited and hopefully like good things yeah your story is so important because it's like we do have entrepreneurs that are just starting and don't know what they don't know. So hearing from people that have been successful is always awesome. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me. Today's episode was brought to you by the magnanimous Matthew Brown. Editing comes from Robert Hartwig and support from Melanie Romero. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you subscribe to the greatest podcasts ever. That does it for me. See you in the tank next week for another bite. Create Like the Greats, hosted by Ross Simmons, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Each episode hosts an in-depth analysis of some of the greatest creations and creators of all time along with deep dive conversations on the creative process that went into building companies and brands. If you like learning about history or learning about the creative process, you'll like this podcast. Listen to Create Like the Greats wherever you get your podcasts.